Now John says, I came baptizing with water in John chapter 1, as he did in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not in relation to a baptism unto the remission of sins unto repentance, or repentance and unto remission of sins, but he comes baptizing, and it's the same program laid out here, but now it is related in John's gospel to grace as personified in the person of the Lord Jesus, and it is related to grace as we think in terms of one being born of the Holy Spirit in not to the kingdom of heaven, but into the kingdom of God. Now, if you will hold that for just a moment and turn to <coughs> Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. A reference has been made to the fact that our Lord taught beyond Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and I believe that. We read in Acts 1, 3, to whom also he showed himself alive, that is, the apostles whom he had chosen, after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, the last two verses in the book of Acts interest me also, because in the 28th chapter of that book, history book of the New Testament, as God has given me to understand it, we have these words. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Now, I discover then in my reading of the Gospels that in the synoptics, the baptism of John is related, obviously so, to a baptism unto repentance and remission of sin. I find for my own heart and for my own blessing that the baptism of John in, the, in John's gospel is related to grace. I find no mention of the kingdom of heaven therein. And I find this, by the way, without contradiction. If you have a question about this, I find no contradiction in Scripture, but I find this in this particular passage, without contradiction, a relationship to grace in the person of Jesus Christ, and yet I find therein the very same baptism uh, to which we have reference in the preceding uh, Gospels. So, as I must concede the truth of Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3, because I believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And I believe that the New Testament is Scripture, just as the Old Testament is Scripture, as we hold this blessed book in our hands today. <laughs> On the other hand, accepting that, I cannot at the same time, in the acceptance of that, ignore the clear teaching of John's Gospel, chapter 1. And so, therefore, in summary of all that I have said, I want to say that in the synoptics, this baptism of John is related to the baptism under repentance and remission of sins. In John's Gospel, there is no such relationship, no such equation, but there is a relationship and it is acquainted, with, uh, equated, I should say, with the grace of God in the person of the Lord Jesus. Now finally, as far as the Great Commission is concerned, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and joined with the verses that I have used, you will find in Mark chapter 16 and verses 19 through 20 that uh, when the Lord had given the Great Commission, we read these words. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, obviously Matthew 28, 18 to 20, as well as Mark 16, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And notice, if you will, please, their response to that which he had spoken unto them. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. So it's obvious to me that they went forth in accordance with his command. Now it was the obedience of the early church, and I realize my time's about gone, it was the obedience of the early church to the Great Commission that enabled them, under God, to reach their generation in their time. I am convinced that it has been the disobedience of the church in recent years, as long as I've been saved, and that's 40, it's been the disobedience of that, to that great commission that has caused the church's failure to reach their generation in their time. And thank you very much. Thank you, Brother Davis. I, for one, certainly appreciate the 
excellent spirit and manner of presentation on the part of all three of these gentlemen. Very happy that they could come and be with us. Now it's your turn. You have an opportunity for questions that you may have. You may feel free to direct them to any one of these particular men relating to any position that they hold or any statement that they made. If you ask a question of one of the gentlemen, then in order to be fair to the others, each one will also have an opportunity to respond to the answer that he has given. All right? We're ready for your questions. I'm a little confused as to what is meant. Anybody, I think, could answer this as to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. What is the difference, if any? All right, we'll start right here at the end. Well, the kingdom of heaven refers back to Daniel 2.44 where God says that the in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now this is not the, a kingdom in heaven. It is the kingdom of heaven clearly to be set up on earth in the days of those kings. You remember the statue that Nebuchadnezzar that, that he dreamed about and that the stone overthrew. So the kingdom of heaven, I think, is a more confined term than the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a much broader term. Uh, for example, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God, is often they're used interchangeably, and that's what's confusing to some of us. Uh, but the kingdom of God, when spoken of as at hand. For instance, in Mark 1, John says the kingdom of God is at hand. Then it is obviously the earthly establishment of the kingdom of God. You see, if he says it's at hand, it must be something that was prophesied and something that was coming. So uh, it seems to me that the kingdom of God is just a broader uh, view than the kingdom of heaven. Now, as to the kingdom of God being referred to both in early and in late act, as our brother Davis just mentioned, it's true that the Lord Jesus uh, for 40 days taught his disciples the things concerning the kingdom of God so that they would know what they were preaching and what the program was. Now, it's true also that in the very end of Acts it says that Paul preach to them or whatever, teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus and the kingdom of God, preach the kingdom of God. But isn't it obvious that he would then tell them what happened to the earthly establishment of the kingdom of God? He would naturally tell them that the kingdom of God would have been established on earth, but they rejected it. They killed Christ, they crucified him, they rejected the Pentecostal testimony. That does not mean that he preached the same message that the twelve did when they preach the kingdom of God or, more specifically, the kingdom of heaven. I think the kingdom of heaven is a program in the scriptures, a prophetic program which culminates in a kingdom, physical kingdom, physical people with Christ ruling on a physical throne in Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is a prophetic program in the scriptures which culminates in the body of Christ subject to God. The kingdom of God is never referred to any place in the Bible including unbelievers. The kingdom of heaven is. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is a, as I said, culmination in an earthly kingdom, physical throne, physical city, physical king. Its ultimate disposition is Christ ruling and reigning physically in Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is a prophetic program, the ultimate conclusion is the complete body of Christ uh, having delivered up all authority to God. One is, well, you can make a simple definition, I guess. One is the professing church and the other is the possessing church today. But that sort of limits the program. You've left out a lot of back prophecy and a lot of prophecy ahead. So the kingdom of heaven is physical kingdom, the kingdom of God is spiritual kingdom. Brother Davis, would you care to comment on that? I think it's been very well covered. That's a disadvantage of being the third man on the pole. <laughs> Amen. Or the advantage. I just I would totally yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Dave Weinberg has a question. Uh, this is addressed to Mr. Stam. In your opinion, what is the relationship between baptism in the Old Testament and John's baptism? Do you believe that God's people have always been saved by God's grace? 
Uh, can I answer number two first? Yes, I believe that man has always been saved by grace through faith. There could be no other way. Uh, Paul says in Hebrews 4, uh, in Hebrews uh, 12, 4, no, thank you, Brian, 4, 1, it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. That is obvious. Pardon me? Oh, is that so? Um, you can get together on that one. Yeah, we'll that uh, now, don't forget what I said. <laughs> that Hebrews says that it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. And if we stop and think just a moment, it is equally impossible that oceans of water could take away sin, could wash away sin. But the fact is that these things were uh, required by God for salvation. I've given you the sacrifice the blood on the altar to make an atonement for your soul. So what would faith do? Faith would bring the sacrifice. It was the only way they could express their faith. They had to obey God and believe God or they didn't believe. That's the same with baptism. I frankly didn't quite get Brother Davis's argument, though he's very clear in frankly all of it, Brother Davis, but I didn't quite get his argument. Does John contradict the synoptic gospels then? Was baptism not required for the remission of sins while our Lord was on earth? It was required for the remission of sins. But the fact is also that man is saved by grace through faith. Those who believe God would come in God's way and be baptized. And if they weren't baptized, as I read from Luke 7, they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. But today we have come to a day when he says it's not by works of righteousness. To him that work does not. And I could go on, you know, with verses of that time from the Pauline epistles that put aside any right for baptism. Now, the first part of that question, I'm sorry, I'm taking my time, haven't I? In your opinion, what is the relationship between baptism in the Old Testament and John's baptism? Oh, very, very close relationship. Uh, we can't take the time, and I don't even remember the exact scripture. I think it's, it's Exodus 35, though, where the priest, there were two kinds of people that were to undergo baptism uh, in the Old Testament. The divers' washings, baptismos, referred to in Hebrews 9, 10. Uh, and that was the priest at his induction into office was to be baptized with water. Now, uh, remember when John came, he said, you'll be a kingdom of priests. They were now to be if they had accepted John's message of kingdom of priests. Uh, you have that in several places. I, uh, Exodus 19, Exodus 25, 35 has to do with this whole subject. That they were to be baptized with water at their induction into office. And John made this a broad thing because now if they'd accepted the gospel of the kingdom, they would have become a kingdom of priests. The others who were to be baptized were the unclean and turn to Acts 10, and you'll see that that refers clearly in type to the Gentiles. And uh, the Great Commission has them also uh, uh, commanded to be baptized uh, with water. All right, this time we'll ask Brother Davis to be second, if he'd care to comment on this. No, let's like take the order, that's all right. Let's take the order. What that way I may not have to comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see a difference in uh, water baptism in the Old Testament and John's baptism? No. Thank you. Carry over with Brother Sam there. I'd comment that I'm thrilled with his quote in Romans 4 that the end of work is not the believe that the end of justified the ungodly was spoken of Abraham. Brother David? May I have the question again, please? In your opinion, what is the relationship between baptism in the Old Testament and John's baptism? I would agree with what I said. All right. And I'm sure you would regarding God's people always having been saved by grace. Right. Uh, may I direct a question to uh, Brother Stan? Um, I, I get the impression from some of the things that you've said and also from some of the comments that were made in your book, uh, things that differ. Uh, I, I, got the, I, I got the impression that you were saying that man was saved by grace uh, through faith plus nothing, but water baptism was still essential. And it seems to me as though that is making water baptism a necessary part of salvation and that without it, a person is not truly saved in the Old Testament economy or in John's 
if I should, I think I use, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this illustration in that first chapter on the principles and dispensations of God. If I should use a screwdriver to turn a screw into the wood, who or what turned that screw into the wood? In one way, you may say, I did it. I turned that screw into the wood. In the other, you could say the screwdriver did. The screw, I didn't touch it. The screwdriver did and turned it into the wood. The one was the instrument, you see. The screwdriver was merely the instrument. Now, as I've said just a few moments ago, it is obvious that sacrifices or water could not take away sin in themselves as such. But it is equally obvious that both were commanded and required for salvation, for the remission of sin. The answer is merely that when God said, come, come this way and I'll forgive your sins, God and faith will come in the way that God says. You have that in Hebrews 11. And I'm delighted that some time ago, uh, Fuller, not Fuller Seminary, the one in Dallas, uh, Dallas Seminary changed this doctrinal statement to show that men, as we find in Hebrews 11, were always saved essentially by the grace of God through faith, but instrumentally by with whatever God commanded them to do at that time. And you have that in Hebrews 11, all the way down the chapter. You have... Uh, a constant, one constant, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. But you have variables there, too. By faith, this is very important, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying, not of his faith in Christ, this was not revealed until Paul came and said, not of works, but by the finished work of Christ, you see. He was saved, here it is, he, by which he offered the sacrifice, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaking. Noah, by faith, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and by which he became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. You know, building an ark can't save anybody, but building an ark was the only way, the one way, in which he could show that he believed God. Get my drift? The same with, with Abel and his sacrifice. The sacrifice can't take away sin, but, but uh, Noah, a big part, but uh, Cain did not bring the sacrifice. He brought a different one and God rejected him. So the, the one way in which Abel could show his faith in God after God had told him what to do was to do what God said. So it was not the sacrifice essentially that saved him, but it was only in that way that he could show that he believed God. You care comment on that? I, I would. Nobody will like to comment. There's just an awful lot of teaching that in the Old Testament they were saved by grace plus bringing sacrifices. And that concludes that if they didn't bring sacrifice, they weren't saved. That's not true. It's simply not true. The law required obedience from who? God's people. It wasn't given to Babylonians, Chaldeans, Canaanites, Amorites, Moabites, anybody else. It was given to God's people. They were God's people whether they kept it or not. They weren't unsaved because they didn't keep the law. They weren't saved by keeping it. They were saved by grace. The law was added for obedience. Now, you've got problems of obedience, too. You have responsibilities before God because you're his children. You don't become his children by keeping those responsibilities. They're yours simply because you're saved by grace. Just as the law was added to God's people, so responsibilities are added to you. Now, if you don't keep them, you're not going to have them. You're not. You'll be a very unprofitable servant. You'll have a very unpeaceful life. You won't know the peace that passes understanding. You won't have any idea of communion and fellowship with the Lord, but you're going to go to heaven. Saved by grace. If any man's work shall fail, he'll suffer loss. You sure would. Yet you'll be saved, so that's by fire. It's true in the Old Testament, same way. The men were saved by grace. It was after God saved them by grace that he added responsibility. Never before. And if they didn't keep the responsibility, 
Well, I wouldn't have you ignorant, brethren. All our forefathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. But with most of them, including Moses, God was not well pleased. Does that mean all of those with whom he wasn't well pleased went to hell? By no means. By no means. You cannot conclude that in any case in the Old Testament, when God was displeased, he sent that person to hell. Any more than you conclude they went to heaven. Heaven and hell are not revelations of the old covenant. But fellowship and communion with God are, in physical type, which are simply the physical types of the spiritual truth for you today. If you don't keep his commandments, you won't bring forth fruit. And if you don't bring forth fruit, you won't glorify God. But that does not mean you're not saved. May I respond to that? Yes. Uh, I, I agree that the nation Israel, all the members of that nation, were God's covenant people. But that doesn't mean they were his saved, born-again children. Otherwise, why would the Lord Jesus have had to say to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again? Why would Paul say they are not all of Israel, which are, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel? Why would the Lord Jesus have had to seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel? He only ministered to Israel. Why would he say, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost? No, I would never concede that all the people of Israel were saved. Not at all. They were given instructions as to what to do to be saved. I've given you that blood on the altar to make an atonement for your soul. And later on you have him saying, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And he says in Luke, here's another case. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves. They did not have their sins remitted because they didn't believe and do what God told them to do. Can I comment on that? <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Yeah. I did not say that because they were God's people, everyone was saved. I said that because they were God's people, you can't conclude they went to hell when they didn't go back. I am not concluding that everyone was saved, and I'm simply asking you not to conclude that everybody went to hell and didn't go back. A mixed multitude went up out of Egypt. Yeah. If you as a body of believers form a group of believers here in Springfield, Ohio, and dedicate your things to the Lord, you'll be a mixed multitude in a year. You will attract people who like your love, who like your fervor, who like your program, who like the things you do in the community, and you'll be a mixed multitude. You sure will. But that's why God says all that are of Israel are not Israel. But all that are of Israel are saved. Whether they keep the law or not, they're saved. That's why it says in Romans 6 that if you live after the flesh, you'll die. Romans 6 and Romans 8. It says that to you. He's saying you're going to go to hell? Absolutely not. But if you live after the flesh, you'll have your flesh reach corruption. And you're going to die. And I will not conclude that you went to hell. Maybe somebody else will. I won't. If you're saved by grace, and you live after the flesh, you will die. You will die a spiritual reality in your life. I believe if you continue it, you may well die physically. You go ahead. I'm not judging who was saved or who was unsaved in the old covenant. I'm simply asking you to agree that there isn't a verse of scripture that will support the fact that anybody that didn't keep the law, like David eating the showbread, where's that? Or like Moses not believing God and not getting into the promised land, where's that? Because ye did not believe me, Joshua 24. Ye do not, did not enter into the promise. That's what he said to Moses. Moses didn't believe God. Well, all the friends I meet, so if you don't believe God, you don't have. It's not true. It's not true. You're not saved because you believe God. You're not going to hell because you don't believe God. You're saved by grace because Christ died in your place. You may be a profitable servant. You may not. I did not say that all of the covenant people of Israel are saved. Any more than I said that all of those that didn't keep the law go to hell. I don't know. I just know that not keeping the law didn't send them to hell. That was a mark of obedience to God's people. <coughs> he didn't put that request for obedience on the Babylonians. All Babylonians go to hell? I don't know. All of those that died in childbirth didn't. That's probably three out of five. It would be more Babylonians in heaven than there are now. We'll get back to you in a moment, brother. Maybe, yeah, maybe Mr. Davis has a comment. Uh, I have a comment, not uh, exactly in the uh, area in which we have been commenting, but I believe what Brother Crawford has been saying. I think I made that clear in my statement. I believe that we are saved by grace through faith, and I do like old Daddy Pettengill, if I may paraphrase, paraphrase the scripture here, plus nothing. But I believe that once we are saved, we are to live 
in the light of the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to take, I'm going to take a combination of two passages, Romans 14, 10 to 12, and 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. We're going to receive the things done in the body since we believed. And therefore, I think that one who is saved by grace, who is aware spiritually of his responsibilities, will do as Paul enjoined upon the Corinthians. He said, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Go back to something else Brother Crawford said. He said, we'll die to things spiritually. I thank you for that, Brother. I have just recently concluded a series in Clintonville before I left there, Baptist Church, in which I said the very same thing. The first death that transpires in your life will be your death to the things of the Spirit in the Word of God. And believe me, there are many people in our churches that are like that. Then I believe, according to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 John 5, 16, and a whole host of verses, that if a person continues to live as a child of God, the chastening hands comes upon him. And if you go back to the preceding verse of those I've just quoted, Paul said, for this cause, many are weak among you, many sick, and many sleep. That is to say, they died in Christ. Their lives were terminated earlier than they need be because they would not walk in obedience to God. Well, that's my comment on that particular thinking. Well, this particular question regarding salvation in the Old Testament and the necessity for resultant works has not been concluded in my own mind. Maybe it hasn't been in yours, but for the benefit of someone else, maybe we could take another question. Right here in the front. Um, Hebrews 11, I'd like to ask them about Enoch. What did he do to show his faith? That's why I say he was translated. Now, he didn't go to the ark, and he didn't get up and leave his country. What did he do? He walked with God, man. He walked with God and saw that. Hmm? God saw it. Huh? God saw it. Perhaps the people around the body, too, to some extent, but God physically. And so it's what God sees in the heart, which is evidenced by this outward manifestation of whatever requirement or stipulation he has made in these different dispensations in different periods of time. I think we ought to uh, really get back to the point that we departed from. Nobody questions that we ought to do. We believers ought to do what God tells us to do. Nobody questions that. We ought to live lives that are pleasing to Him or obey Him. We have to do here with the terms of salvation. And there were terms of salvation. In the Old Testament, there were one thing after another. If you obey my voice indeed, then you'll be my special people and so on. And that would mean that the one who was the greatest believer would be the best law keeper, too. He'd try like anything to keep that law. And it was an evidence of his faith. Now, you get to John the Baptist, and it's repent and be baptized for the remission of sin. The Lord Jesus, he that believes in the baptized should be saved. Now, all right. Uh, I understood Brother uh, Crawford to say that they were, all, they were all saved by grace. All right, say there. We agree now that they were not all saved by grace. They were, uh, some of them saved, not saved, some not saved in, in the Old Testament time. I said all God's people were saved by grace. That's right. All God's people were saved by grace. That's right. All they, all Israel is not, uh, all they that are of Israel are not Israel. And there were the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How are these lost sheep to be saved? The Lord Jesus said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sin. At Pentecost, very clearly, Peter didn't say, if you feel so led. Peter said, when they said, well, what should we do? They were pricked in their hearts and, well, convicted. What, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And, that is, and then, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So there were requirements for salvation, ways in which they had to show that they believed God. Until you come to Paul, who is the first one to rise as he does, he rises in, in Romans 3.21, but now... The righteousness of God without the law is manifested. And then he shows how it is all by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The but now of Paul's epistles are a wonderful, wonderful study. So we have to do not with obeying God. We have to do with the terms of salvation here. And those terms, I contend, did change as the dispensations of God changed. Never in the Old Testament, we find now, thank God, we find now, as, as Paul says uh, in Romans 3, that concerning the sins which are, are past, let's see here, we have it, um, uh, 
uh, we, we now declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. That's a big difference from, from Acts 2. We now declare his right at this time, I say, his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. That is, we now know how David was saved. We now know how Abram was saved. We now know that it was not those works. It was by the grace of God, you see. But that was not revealed, as Paul said, it was manifested in due time. Not only not to him that worked, it is to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith, his believing, is counted for righteousness. That's wonderful. I didn't say it. God did. And to count my faith as righteousness is a great gift of grace. May I ask a question, Mr. Sure. Uh, this matter of righteousness in Acts chapter, Romans chapter 4, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, at verse 21, we read, For he hath made him sin for us, the reference being to Christ, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, I am sure that we'll all agree that God made Jesus Christ sin for us there at Calvary. Yeah. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, and so forth. And over here in Acts chapter 2, of course, which uh, precedes the uh, comment on 2.38, repenting to baptize in the name of Jesus Christ, remission of sins, and so forth, we read these words. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved to God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now that puts uh, the Christ right where we have him in Romans 4, right where we have him and 2 Corinthians 5, that is, on the cross, dying for sins, whom God hath raised up. Now that puts him right where you have him in Romans 4, raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Now I'd like to suggest that Peter's presentation to these people, repent and be baptized, was premised upon the same act and the same fact that Paul's presentation in Romans 4 is premised upon the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Seems like we're a long way out of baptism. <laughs> but no, what I still have to say, I, I'm not here to argue with anybody. I'm simply saying I believe the scriptures teach salvation by grace. I preach Peter's message. Change your mind and be identified with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You're not saved. That's the message I preach every day. God's terms of salvation have never changed. You've taken baptizo and said, repent and be baptized with water for the remission of sin. Doesn't say that to me. You may say that to Brother Sam, may say that to Brother David. Doesn't say that to me. It says, change your mind. You used to think this way, now think this way, and identify yourself with Christ. Why should I be identified with the dead if the dead raised not? I die daily, says Paul in Corinthians 15. He's not baptized for the dead, he's identified with the dead. If you're not identified with Christ, you're not saved. That was the terms of salvation in the Old Testament, the terms of the the law, the covenant that was before confirmed of God in Christ, the law which is born in 30 years after, cannot disallow that it should make a promise of no effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it's not a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. We also read that a man is not saved by the law of evidence, for the just shall live by faith. That's the law. If you believe the just are saved by faith, man, that's Old Testament teaching. If you believe your sins are remembered no more, you're quoting the Old Testament. If you believe that we thought for and not found, you're quoting the Old Testament. I believe all those. I believe God preached it in physical type in the Old Testament so that I can understand the spiritual truth in the middle. And that I am identified with Christ. Peter's message, Paul's message, all messages of the Holy Spirit. I couldn't agree more with Brother Davis that Peter's message in Acts is salvation by grace and identification with Jesus Christ. Amen. That's why Moses identified himself with Christ rather than with Pharaoh's household. Hey, you got a question back there. May I respond to that? Uh, this is... I, I think that question was addressed to me, and I... Uh, <laughs> well, we got off the track, didn't we? I'm sorry. Sure. Hold your question for just a moment. Go, uh, go ahead. I think the... the, the is that all right? Yes, go ahead. Uh, it is true that both Peter in Acts 2, dear brother, and Paul in Romans 3 refer to the death and resurrection of Christ. But there's a vast difference. Peter in Acts 
all the way through to the fifth of Acts, blames them for the death of Christ. He doesn't want to say Christ died for your sins. He said, you took him and with wicked hands have crucified him and slain him. And then when they were convicted and said, what shall we do? He did not say, Christ died for your sins, believe in him and you'll be saved. He did not declare, as Paul did in Romans 3, the righteousness of God and of Christ for the remission of sins. He told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. I can, uh, I can uh, sympathize with Brother uh, Crawford's view that the baptism in Acts 2.38 is not water, but it, it certainly doesn't seem to go with the preceding context where John baptized with water, and Jesus baptized more disciples than John. Jesus told his twelve to go baptize, and Peter did under that commission. Mr. Maddox has a question. I'd like a clarification, if I could. Is that the man from uh, Georgia? Yeah, I'm not saying I'm dramatic. I'd like a clarification from Mother Sam on his position. I, what, what appears to me to be an ambiguity, his position on the Old Testament means of salvation. If I'm, uh, if I'm correct, I believe he said that, that, that it is true that men have always been saved by grace through faith. Essentially. Okay. All right. Uh, then, uh, then you, uh, then I believe you said that, now maybe, maybe the reason I don't understand your position is the fact that maybe I'm trying to look at it from both God's viewpoint and man's viewpoint. I wanted you to clarify, uh, from God's viewpoint, you indicated that, that man was has always been saved by grace through faith, and and quoted God as it were, saying that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sins, and never have been able to. Do I understand you then to say that nonetheless, even though God has said the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away your sins, God didn't require them to offer the blood of bulls and goats to take away their sins, which to me appears to be an ambiguity from the standpoint of the fact that God said it's not required, but it's required. It's not necessary to do that in order to be saved, but you must do it. Uh, and then, uh, then a further uh, confusing factor to me is that you said when the Apostle Paul came along then, I got the impression that you said, he then revealed that it, all along it wasn't necessary, but we didn't know it. Now, from God's viewpoint, what I want to know is, from God's viewpoint, what is, is man saved by grace through faith, through faith throughout all these times, eternity? Is it necessary, was it ever necessary to offer blood? Golden Ghost, and uh, if the Apostle Paul found out it wasn't necessary, did I understand you correctly? Would you clarify? I, I see I'm giving Paul, I didn't say Paul found out that it had not been necessary. Paul states what certainly must have been true way back there. David says, sacrifice and offerings can't take away sin. He, he says that himself in the Psalms. Now, Nevertheless, if David had said, you don't have to bring a sacrifice, that's not necessary, he would have been out of the will of God because God demanded it for salvation. So, I say salvation, or man has always been saved by grace through faith, essentially. The blood of bulls and goats in itself did not take away sin. The washing of water in itself did not wash away sin. But, but God said they're required, so doing that showed that they were coming God's way and therefore had faith. Brother, the things that you said seem ambiguous or contrary are both in Scripture. He says, I've given you that blood as an atonement for your soul. He says, uh, repent and be baptized for the remission of sin. So it was not until in due time, Paul says, that this was revealed and this was manifested that uh, it's now shown, for example, the keeping of the law. He says, if you obey my voice indeed, then you'll be my special people. How many could keep their, his, uh, his, uh, obey his voice indeed and keep his covenant, the covenant of the law? Nobody. But the fact is that if they believed him, they would certainly try, wouldn't they? And it was the faith that God honored and by which we were saved. My question, though, is, uh, I don't think, uh, least, I don't think that's yet. My question is, in your viewpoint, from God's standpoint, did he require and then not require? Or did he say, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin? But I want you to do it anyway. He required it of them. But when he saw that, oh, this man believes me, he's coming to bring a sacrifice. It was not that sacrifice that saved. It was the man's faith that saved. But from God's viewpoint, though, yes. he, he said... It was by grace through faith from God's viewpoint. But God of man required 
certain work that they're done. And, uh, could I comment on that just a second? I, you've got a tremendous problem. You know if you're going to believe this, frankly. Let's say that I'm one of God's covenant people and I committed adultery. What sacrifice I bring? Somebody here that studied the Old Testament all your life. Tell me what sacrifice I bring. Hundred lambs? Thousand? Two turtle doves? Five oxen? What do I bring when I commit adultery? What do I bring when I commit murder? What do I bring when I commit any sin against God? There's not one stipulated sacrifice in the Old Testament for a known sin. When David committed adultery and murder, he faced one thing under the law, death. If he could have brought any sacrifice, he'd have brought it. He was king. He could have brought all the lambs in Israel, all the oxen, all the turtle doves. He could have brought anything God required. But the law is stipulated sacrifice. The law condemned every man for known sin. The only sacrifices in the Old Testament that were brought by God's covenant people were for unknown sin. You never brought a sacrifice for known sin. Therefore, the law left you high and dry. Unless you're going to say that people didn't sin willfully in the Old Testament. No, any sacrifice you can bring. There's not one stipulated sacrifice for willful sin. That's why the law drove us to Christ. It's our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and we might be justified by faith. Because you can't do it by the law. There aren't any sacrifices. Man, they'd have tried to bring them. There were, but there weren't any. Now, Mr. Kay has a question. Uh, Mr. Sand seems to say that whenever there is work of grace is enacted in a person's life, whereby he is saved, there has to be some physical act to go along with this. There was. All right. Uh, in many churches today, Brother David, uh, Baptist churches, they seem to hold baptism as given in, as we know, uh, the Great Commission, as a prerequisite for church membership and a prerequisite for the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And it is considered as an ordinance in the same light as the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Do you feel that baptism, as you know it, should be a prerequisite to uh, church membership and a prerequisite to partaking of the Lord's Supper? Or would you deny someone who is saved by grace the right of fellowship because they have not been baptized? In uh, some respects, brother, I am a, I am a terrible Baptist. <laughs> well, we'll stop your testimony right there. You're supposed to be here represented. Oh, no, wait. May I finish my statement? Just when I finish what I want to say. I uh, apparently did not make clear even to Brother Stam, and I'm glad you opened the door a little while ago. I apparently didn't make myself clear, but uh, Brother Wiseman had said that I was here to present baptism as an act of obedience. And I thought that that would preclude any necessary statement on my part. I believe that one follows his Lord in baptism as a public testimony, uh, outward testimony, an outward expression to an inward reality. But in every Baptist church I've ever pastored, and I'm aware of the fact that there are some Baptist preachers here, I have never kept anyone away from the Lord's table. I do not believe that they're under law or I'm under law. I have not kept them away from the Lord's table because they came as guests and were not baptized people. I suggested as I opened the table from 1 Corinthians 11 that they examine themselves before the Lord and let the Holy Spirit be their guide. My teaching is that people follow the Lord in baptism as an act of obedience and recognition of that which has already transpired inwardly. Well, I appreciate right? the question and I appreciate the answer, but really I think it would It'll be tied in more, more in detail, I think, tonight on the final session when we deal with water baptism today. Would you identify yourself, please? I don't know you, sir. I talked with you on the phone. Appreciate seeing you. Good to have you here. I'd like to ask Mr. Stamp a question on this idea of instrumentality. And if you use as your prime example, Hebrew chapter 11, the by which, are you aware that grammatically the by which can refer to faith and not to the activity stated in each of those verses? And then we would simply, no, I, I do not concede that. And then we go back to uh, Genesis 4, where he says, God had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But does that say that his offering was the same that Cain favor with God? Well, he had respect to Abel, but not to Cain. He didn't accept Cain. He did accept Abel because he brought the right offering, very obvious. What was that I do not... Uh, Pardon me? What was that sign of? Faith? That's right. Okay. 
at least keep fresh in our mind that you've passed beyond some of the first principles. You're not arguing about laying on hands. You're not talking about repentance from dead works or faith toward God. You're not talking about uh, uh, eternal judgment or resurrection from the dead. Apparently, you're pretty well set in what you believe on those things. You only have one left, according to Hebrews 6. And that's the doctrine of baptism, so it has to be pluralized. He pointed out to you in the ninth chapter of Hebrews that the Jews under the old covenant were occupied with divers' baptism. They had a tremendous process of ceremonial cleansing. We tried to go back to what I would consider basics. What does the word mean? And it is absolutely fallacious to read the scriptures in every place you see the word baptism to conclude that that is some mode of water baptism. I would most heartily urge you to look carefully at these I am of the persuasion that where water baptism is meant, the word water usually occurs to modify the uh, use of the verb. Uh, for example, I mentioned 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says God didn't send me a baptized, but to preach the gospel. And I thank God that I baptized none of you, save Crispus and Gaius, and I baptized also the household of Stephanus, and I know not whether I baptized any other. Now, if he were actually there talking about baptism with water, my personal persuasion, the Spirit would have modified it to say baptism with water. Secondly, I read between the lines more than I should. And I've already, already been criticized for that. You have a right to do that. You ought to look at everything I say as suspect, particularly when I'm reading the white spaces. But it would appear to me, if Paul had been at Corinth for 18 months, and it performed a baptismal service. It seems a bit odd, Brother Davis would be more confident on this than I, that he doesn't even remember whether he baptized any other. It isn't odd to me that he might not remember their names, but he ought to remember that they had two or three baptismals the first uh, six months and one or something or three months later. I believe there must have been 15 or 20 or 50 or 100 or 2,000 people that came. Why? Because God didn't send him to identify. I did deal personally with Christus and God. They were priests in the temple. They were Jews. And God gave me the opportunity to deal with them. I led them to Christ. I identified them with Christ. But all the time I was there, I preached the gospel. It was the word of the cross that I presented. I don't know whether any of you found Christ out of that ministry or not. Oh, I did have one tremendous opportunity to talk to the household of Stephen. There I was consent, consenting to his death, but I had a chance. I led them to Christ. What a fabulous meeting that was. Now we're asked to deal particularly with baptism in the Acts of the Apostles. But it's absolutely imperative to me, if I'm to present any position at all, that you not look at the word every place it occurs as though it means a method of water baptism. The word means to come under the influence of something. In some cases it's water. In other cases it's, well, one of the earliest uses of baptism that I've ever been able to find is a man received a very high honor if he happened to be baptized as an Egyptian. And baptism to them meant being eaten by an alligator. And he had a special funeral, and they, oh, the priest had to close the remains of his body if they could get any of them, with special robes, a big service, and he was a hero for as long as they could remember in Egyptian history. And that man was called baptized. He was eaten by an alligator. And there were lots of other cases. If a ship sank, it was baptized. If I got mad at you and hit you in the eye and gave you a black eye, and somebody asked, what happened to you? Well, I was baptized. Your eye came under the influence of my fist. And I mentioned this morning, I've called out uh, almost 160 meanings for the words uh, baptizo or bapto or baptismo in the Greek. That's the way that people looked at that word. There is no possibility that every time they saw the word, it meant some specific mode of baptism. Now, out of the Jewish practice of what we call water baptism, they had a thing called proselyte baptism. And for a Gentile to become a Jew, he had to be washed with water. We are not here, I assume, to argue on how they did that, whether they immersed him in the stream or whether they sprinkled or poured or beside the point. But they had this method of baptism. And that's all the disciples of the Lord knew, was what we might call proselyte baptism, where they could take one outside of the household, the household of God or the household of faith, if you want to call that an act, and perform a rite of water baptism. You'll note in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, where Old Testament truth was carried in the New Testament doctrine, that the eunuch said, here is water. What hinders that we be baptized? And there the word obviously means water baptism because tied with water. The first place that's a problem to you is probably Acts 2.38, where Peter tells them to repent and be baptized, 
and then he preaches a sermon to tell him what he meant. Now that's no different than I do, and I don't imagine it's any different than Brother Sam or Brother Davis do. Uh, I prefer not to preach. I don't get away with it too often, but I always prefer open discussion. Most of you that know me know that. But when I preach, I preach, I guess, like most anybody else. I take a text and swing on it. Now I try not to swing too far from it, and I'm open to any criticism when I do. I prefer any day of the week to teach verse by verse than to preach a sermon. But Paul was preaching to a, or, sorry, Peter was preaching to a mass of people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he said, "Repent and be baptized." And that's the first. There are only two. That's the first imperative, the first command to be baptized in the Bible. The word does not occur as an imperative before this. The only other place it occurs as an imperative is Acts 22.16. Yeah, that's right. Those are the only two places that word occurs as a command. And in both cases, it's passive voice. So Peter comes out and he opens his opening statement for his sermon, what we might call the text. Change your mind and be identified with Jesus Christ. He did not say to be baptized with water, and he went on to preach what he meant by identification with Christ. That God, by his determinate foreknowledge and predetermination, had led Herod and Pilate and the Jews to put Christ to death that he might be made an offering for sin. And if you people are to be saved, you're going to have to be identified with Christ. Some of them were pricked in their hearts and some weren't. Identification with Christ meant death to them. It did to Paul. He said he's identified with the dead. And if the dead don't rise, why should I be identified with the dead? Also, it says to be baptized for the remission of sins. The, uh, the Greek structure in Acts 2.38 is an interesting structure, and it's a rather detailed study of grammar. I know of no competent Greek scholar who would agree that the identification there is one of sphere, not of motion. Now, I, I want to point out that there is a, a difference there. You can be identified with water by jumping into it, or you can be identified with water by being in a boat, let's say. You're in the sphere of the water. When you're baptized into Christ, you're in the sphere of Christ. When we're talking about motion, we're talking about position. That's why Romans tells us that we're identified with the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Romans 6, if Acts 2.38, if Acts uh, 8.16 yeah, are commands for water baptism, then we all must walk out of here agreeing that you're not saved unless you're water baptized. Now, I mentioned this morning, and I don't know, I don't want to take too much time because I've shot my gun. For me to tell you not to be water baptized, and that's the purpose of this conference, I'd much rather have this conference on spirit baptism or on spiritual identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's on water baptism. I'm learning about water baptism, and I told Mark, got the wrong man. You've got two experts here in one mouth. I don't know about water baptism. I do know. That if water baptism is a commandment in the New Testament, then it's necessary for salvation. For the verses that use it, from which we extract some kind of commandment for water baptism, make it mandatory that we be baptized or we're not saved. Romans 6, for example, I have very precious friends who take that as water baptism. If it is, you're not in Christ unless you're water baptized. And we don't live the Christian life by rule. For me to tell you not to be water baptized, as I mentioned this morning, I, I want to repeat it because it means a lot to it. would be the same as telling you don't give any money to the church. You don't tithe by law, and you're not baptized with water by law. But the important teaching of baptism is the passive voice in Acts 2.38. Eric, imperative passive. Repent, change your mind. You have your mind that you're God's people. You don't ever get the idea of Paul's pagan. Well, there's that awful pagan Paul. He was saved on the road to Damascus. That's not true. Paul was a student of the scriptures. Paul went out serving Jehovah. He thought he was serving the Lord. He thought he was serving God, the God he knew, and studying the revelation he had of the God he knew. That's what he thought he was doing. He was no baggage. He was skilled in the things of Jehovah. But he changed his mind on the road to Damascus because God dealt with him in grace and in power. The God of glory appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. The God of glory appeared to Abraham before he dwelt in heaven, Stephen tells us in And when the God of glory appears to you, you don't listen. You know, when I appear to you, I don't listen. But when the God of glory appears to you, something happens to you, you don't listen. I think the glory of God is nothing compared to the God of glory. And I think that's a powerful phrase when the Spirit tells us that the God of glory appeared to Abraham, the God of glory appeared to Paul. 
can change his life. Now, when Peter is preaching here, he uses a passage. Be identified. Allow yourself to be identified with the things of Christ. Are you? Somebody asked me this morning, but I don't understand If I've accepted Christ as my own personal Savior, I'm saved. Well, I agree, I guess, with the language that you're careful. We have a Christian community that grows up and says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved. That's not true. Now, you're going to quote scripture and you say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I shall be saved. That's true. Well, then, if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, am I saved? Not necessarily. I don't know how you believe. Devil believes. And I said, 